You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Though the band was unhappy with the polished sound of the production on its release in 1991, their major label debut breathed life back into rock and roll and defined it for a whole new generation. Next, ladies and gentlemen, we have three fine young men from Seattle. Here they are, Nirvana! Before Nirvana, there was no way that you could be in a punk band and be famous and make money. When they came out, it just changed the landscape of everything. Change the rules of the game, change the way you could sound. Kids all of a sudden saw three people that could be their neighbors or the people they buy pot from, and they're making this music that's like angry, youthful punk rock, but you could sing along to it. Nevermind was just a great record. It was the only one of its kind. That was a very unique band where the great sound doesn't need to be overanalyzed. It was just cool. Sonny, it's been said a long time that grunge killed what we love in our rock and roll and that it all started with Nirvana's Nevermind. So what did the charts look like on January 11th, 1992, the day that Nevermind hit number one on Billboard's Hot 200 album chart, replacing that rock and roll heavy record, Michael Jackson's Dangerous, we're going to find out all about that in this episode of When Rock Ruled the Charts. Are you excited about this episode? This is going to be interesting because I learned some things. We are going to have an interesting conversation today because January 11th, 92 had a different style of rock on the charts. There was our rock, but there was other rock on there too. That's not Nirvana, all kind of battling for position. So very interesting. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because I looked over the chart preparing for this episode and I think we're going to be able to answer the question, did Nirvana kill 
our rock and roll at the end of this episode, because I definitely have some opinions based on what I saw on the charts. And we're going to get into all that and more. But you know what we do here at the Growing Up Rock Podcast. Before we get into all that, we got to turn our listeners on to some new music. It's time for the Crank It Up New Music Spotlight. So tonight's Crank It Up New Music Spotlight, we are featuring another band from where else? Sweden, for God's sakes, formed in Stockholm in 2000, Crash Diet, with their latest release coming from a record that they haven't released yet, but are supposed to release sometime this year, Crash Diet, No Man's Land.
So I didn't know a ton about Crash Diet. I had heard the album Rust in 2019. I thought it was okay. I think this song has a great chorus, great riff, and man, the production sounds absolutely huge. So if we get 10 of these songs, it's going to be a pretty good album. Well, they are been on a lot of people's up and coming list for, you know, that sleazy hard rock feel of a band. You know, I know they like to paint themselves up a little bit, not to the point of kiss. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, they come on looking a little bit beaten, sort of like confess in a lot of ways to me. Crash Diet is Gabriel Keys on vocals, Martin Sweet on guitars, Peter London on bass and Eric Young on drums. Gabriel Keys, I think, is either the second or third singer for them. I know they had a little bit of success, and then their original singer passed away. Uh, They've definitely had some drama in that band over the years. But yeah, I like this tune a lot. I don't know that I liked everything off of Rust. Some of it I did, and some of it I didn't. So I'll be interested to hear this record for sure. But like I said, I know that they're appearing on a lot of people's list uh, for up-and-coming band, and a lot of people are excited about this band. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. All right, let's get into tonight's episode. What do you got for us? So we're going to talk about January 11th, 1992. Special day because Nirvana hits number one on the Billboard 200 with Nevermind. Many people would argue, like you kind of talked about, it changed the face and feel of rock music forever. Now, we're not reviewing Nevermind because I would rather take a punch in the nuts from Mike Tyson than review that goddamn album. (laughs) But instead, we will travel back in time and look at all the rock and hard rock acts that were on the Billboard 200 at the same time. Basically, who did Nirvana overtake, discuss if, you know, the date killed hair metal, did Nirvana kill hair metal, or did something else kill hair metal, and just take a trip down memory lane. So kind of before we get started, we're 30 years ago, so we're talking 30-year anniversary here. How old are you on January 11th, 92? Shit, man, I'd have to do math in order for that to happen. We'll start at 40 and then move up. (laughs) (laughs) that's not true i was trying to figure out where i was even living in 92 92 was around about the time i started going on the road a lot so let's see um carry the one (laughs) i don't know i don't have my shit in front of me i don't know how old was i in 92 if i was born in 66 that would probably make you almost 26 all right i was almost 26 (laughs) uh good for you okay so i had just turned 22 Now, where are you living? Are you on the road at this time? Uh, I am in Atlanta in 92. And yeah, I'm. uh, this is when I started going on the road a lot. I think I was still working at the record distributor in 92. Yeah, I was still in the Bay Area. And actually, I was in the middle of taking a shot at like managing bands and booking gigs, which was an absolute epic fail because it was a pain in the ass. And it was so much easier to be in retail than my retail career started taking off instead. So that's kind of where I was at the time. Le So, like I said, we're going to talk about the Billboard Top 200, so we're looking at album charts here, and we're going to talk rock, and, you know, some of this, you know, is it rock? Well, it might be a little bit of a stretch, but we'll go with it. And we are going to start with number 196 on the Billboard 200, Sailing the Sea of Cheese by Primus. (laughs) 
So this album had actually peaked at 116. This is re-entering. So, by the way, Primus are Bay Area Brothers. They were formed in El Sobranti. Obviously, this is Les Claypool. He's the guy that everybody talks about. Technically, this was their second release because they finally got a major label, Interscope, finally signed them in 1990. Album had three singles. Jerry was a race car driver, which was all over MTV. Tommy the Cat, which some people remember. And those damn blue-collar tweakers, which nobody remembers. The band, you know, it's all about the funk. They were alternative, basically. And this album was released in 91. So it's possible that because the music landscape is changing, it's bringing them back onto the charts. We don't quite know that yet. Number 188, we got Attack of the Killer Bees by Anthrax. It's re-entering the charts. It had peaked at number 27. Now, Anthrax, one of the big four thrash metal. They got five studio albums at this point. This is their first compilation album, and it's all B-sides, covers, rarities for their fans. Smart move, because Metallica Black Album just had hit number one, and it was making every thrash band very, very interesting at the time. Joey Belladonna still handling vocal duties at this time, and this is the album that had Bring the Noise with Public Enemy. So it did really well, but I think it's re-entering the charts because people are starting to discover who Anthrax is because thrash is also taking off at this point. At 186, we got Pump by Aerosmith. It's on a 109-week on the charts peaked at number five. We're talking January 11th, 92. This thing got released in September of 89. Tells you all you need to know about Aerosmith's comeback. Janie's Got a Gun went number four in the Billboard 100. Loving an Elevator went number five. What It Takes went number nine. The Other Side went number 22. It's still all over MTV. And Aerosmith, by this time, they're a classic band. They're going to survive whatever the landscape is that's going to change. At 174, another interesting band, Ritual de lo Habitual by Jane's Addiction is re-entering. This has peaked at number 90. It was on the charts for over a year. Now we're talking Perry Farrell, Dave Navarro Connection. This is their second album. They're off and on the charts the whole time because I think every time a single dropped and every time there was a new kind of alternative rock band hitting, Jane's Addiction would come back into the fold. And MTV was all over Been Caught Stealing and it basically made them. All the hubbub about this band, they have four studio albums total in their entire career, by the way. And then rounding out, the first five we're going to talk about at number 170, Ceremony by the Cult. This is also re-entering the charts. This is the fifth studio album by the English Rockers that came out in September of 91. I think it's re-entering because they just released their second single, Heart of Soul, after Wild Hearted Sun had already come out. Now, think about The Cult. They released another album in 94, which was self-titled. They basically went over like a thud, and they were done after that. So I think they kind of got caught up in being hair metal, but I wouldn't call The Cult a hair metal band personally. So I want to get your take on these five albums, get your favorite out of the five. My favorite out of these five, to me, they're not a lot of great choices, so I'm going to go with The Cult. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, this is definitely five very different albums for sure. All rock for sure, but five very different albums. I recently saw Primus. They're just an interesting band. I don't I don't know what to say about Primus. They're an interesting band. I own this record, Sailing the Sea of Cheese. It's got some cool stuff on it, but it's not something I would listen to uh ever. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it's not something I put on. I own the record because I did peruse some of this record today preparing for this episode. I forgot about some of the stuff, but it's always interesting to listen to. Attack of the Killer Bees, Bring the Noise. I remember seeing that on MTV. I like the combination of the rap and the rock. I like Anthrax. This isn't one of my favorite records by them, but I do like some Anthrax. Pump Aerosmith, like you said, what more can be said about this band or this record? I know you're not a huge fan. I'm a pretty big fan, and this record is awesome. So absolutely love this record, and yeah, that's it. Ritual de lo habitual. I saw this tour. They sold out a couple of nights here at a fairly small place. Jane's Addiction, this band from day one, even before they were signed, had so much hype behind them. They got like this ridiculous record deal with all this money thrown at them. They were the next big thing, but they were never really digestible by the general public. I know Ben Cott Stealing was a big tune, but they were just a strange band. And I like a lot of the Jane's Addiction stuff. I loved that first record. Ritual Delo Habitual is okay for me. It's got some good stuff on it. I like kind of the combination of some of the funky grooves that the band has. So I like this record uh, and I like the band a little bit, but they never lived up to the hype, I don't think. Ceremony the Cult, after the Cult had so much success with that last album in the U.S. with Sonic Temple, when they got to Ceremony, it was like a big thud. And I went through this record today. I love Wild Hearted Son, and I think that's a killer tune. But there's not a ton of other great stuff on this record for me. Uh, it's very moody. It's very Ian Asbury playing to his thralled with the American Indian and all that other stuff. He was the perfect choice to do that Doors gig. He's so much into like a lot of the stuff that Jim Morrison seemed to be into. For me, it's pretty easy. Pump Aerosmith would be the record for me out of this bunch of five. <laughs>
right, so the next six we're going to talk about at number 163, Facelift by Alice in Chains. So they are re-entering the charts at this point. The album released in August of 1990, and 16 months later, it re-enters the chart. Sap is still three weeks away from being released. Dirt doesn't release until mid-92. So why is it re-entering, right? All the three singles have already been released. Man in the Box, Bleed the Freak, See a Sorrow. You got to pretty much believe MTV's behind Alice in Chains, and the landscape changing is helping because they are coming back onto the charts. Going downward is ACDC, The Razor's Edge, at number 158. It's ACDC's 12th studio album. This thing has been on the charts for since September 1990, so it was on a year-plus run. The singles Thunderstruck, Money Talks, which, by the way, went to number 23 on the Billboard 100, and it was their first hit on the charts in eight years. And Are You Ready was on the same album. ACDC's fine. They're bulletproof for life. They're ACDC. At number 155, It's On The Way Up, is Slayer's live album, Decade of Aggression. So it had just gotten released in October of the previous year. They were absolutely riding the coattails of Metallica because Thrash is becoming huge. This is Slayer's second live release, along with five studio albums. And by the way, a little trivia, this album was supposed to be called Decade of Decadence, but Crew had already registered the name, by the way. And of course, Slayer has no singles because, well, it's Slayer. At number 143, their second week on the chart, Pearl Jam 10. And obviously, this thing blows up later. It got released in August 1991, and it's their second week on the chart. So it took a while to get going. They've only released a live so far. But later in 92, you get Evenflow, Jeremy, even that shitty song, Oceans. And this album goes all the way to number two in 92. So did Nirvana throw the first punch? And then here comes Pearl Jam and Alice in Chains behind it? Who knows? And number 136. Well, because Nirvana is number one with Nevermind, here comes Bleach back on the charts. Back on the charts? No, it was never on the charts before because nobody gave a shit about this album until Nevermind went number one. This album had sold 40,000 copies in the U.S. After Nevermind goes number one, it goes to 1.9 million, basically overnight. The two singles off this were Love Buzz and Blue. Those songs are brutal. <laughs> I don't know why anybody, the only reason anybody owns this record is they're a Nirvana completist. That's it. And then at number 108, you got Queensryche live album, Operation Live Crime. They're on the way down here after eight weeks on the chart. They had four studio albums by this point. They had a great EP. Queensryche's releasing their first live album. It's doing super well because they're ultra hot from Silent Lucidity. They're definitely at their peak. But man, does it go downhill quick after this because Promised Land comes two years later. It charted okay, but then they got kind of caught up in the whole hair metal thing too. And I'm not sure it's fair that they can be called hair metal, but they weren't thrash. So they weren't going to make it. So there you go. Six more albums on the chart. My fave out of these six, I would have to say is Facelift. How about you? Just this initial run of these first two groups, it's not all grunge, like you said. And there's a lot of aggressive stuff with the thrash. Live Decade of Aggression, I think, is a better name for Slayer than Decade of Decadence would have been. So to me, that's a smart move or a good trade for them. Facelift, Allison Chains, I absolutely love. The Razor's Edge, ACDC, I think is a really good record. Slayer, I could care less. 10 by Pearl Jam, I definitely cared about. Bleach by Nirvana, I never owned. And Operation Live Crime, I own that box set. The box set has a video, the CD, and a color booklet in it. That's pretty nice. For me, probably, man, it's kind of tough because I feel sort of similar about a lot of these records. I think I probably prefer Facelift out of all these records the best. 
because the Operation Live Crime, I mean, it's just a live thing, so I don't really count that. It would go facelift, ACDC, and 10 for me in that order. <laughs>
right, so let's talk about the next six. We're creeping into the top 100 here. So at number 97, you got Tesla's Psychotic Supper. It was on the way up. Third studio album released. It had just come out in September. The major singles on this album were Edison's Medicine, Call It What You Want, What You Give, had just gotten released, and it was giving the album new life because it got all the way to number 86. What You Give was the only single to chart off this album, and it was their last charting hit. Song of Emotion never got on the charts. You can safely say this is Tesla's peak, even though great radio controversy sold more. Psychotic Supper actually charted higher, and then it's all downhill from here because you get busted not 94, and then the next studio I'm after that's 10 years later. Number 94. Now we get to industrial, right? So you got Nine Inch Nails with Pretty Hate Machine. It's going on the way up. It's their debut album. It's been on the charts for over a year. Nine Inch Nails were on the Billboard 200 for over a year. Wow. The singles, down in it, never heard it. Sin, never heard it. (laughs) Head Like a Hole, couldn't stop hearing it. Because a goddamn MTV, Head Like a Hole was on like every hour at least. It's almost like their industrial sound got mixed in with like Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Metallica. Maybe they were kind of getting both the thrash and the grunge guys at the same time. I'm not sure, but I listened to this whole album today. It's terrible. I could not listen. It's, oh my God, is it bad? But, you know, I'm not a Nine Inch Nails fan, so whatever. Number 88, Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden. It's on the way up. It's their third studio album. Released in October 91, hasn't hit its peak yet. This thing would get to number 39, and really, they were starting to appeal to wide audiences. Three outstanding singles, Jesus Christ Pose, Outshined, and Rusty Cage. None of them are going to hit the Billboard 100. We got it, but they're all over MTV. Cornell's voice is like piercing through rock at the time. Soundgarden videos were like part rebel, part dangerous. It was crazy. We've said it before. Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, they were like appealing to the hair metal guys because they were bridging the gap to Nirvana. So it doesn't surprise me that Bad Motor Finger, not only being a great album, but just was doing well all the way around. At number 87, you got Crazy World by Scorpions. It's on the way down, but it's been on the chart for 60 whopping weeks after getting released at the end of 1990. It's their 11th studio album. Tease Me, Please Me did okay. Don't Believe Her did okay. Neither one charted. But then Wind of Change comes. And they released that thing in like 20 different languages. And it went to number four on the Billboard 100. And then right after it came Send Me an Angel, which went to 44. Crazy World, by the way, was Scorpion's only number one album in Germany. They did not have another number one album in Germany. Scorpions, I would also say, is surviving like ACDC, right? They don't care if the landscape is changing. They're not as big as ACDC, but they're worldwide. So they're a classic band, and nothing's really going to change what they're going to do. At number 83, Slave to the Grind, Skid Row, it's on the way down. We've talked a bunch about Slave to the Grind. It had debuted at number one as their second album. We talked about it a lot on the June 27, 2021 episode. It's episode 208, if you want to give a listen. This album's going up and down, up and down the charts every time a new single or video is released. And by this time, you already got Monkey Business, Slave to the Grind, Wasted Time is already out there. In a Darkened Room is already out there. So basically, Skid Row is like Glass of the Mohicans here, there. It's a harder album, so they're kind of getting like a little bit of the Pantera industrial slash thrash crowd, and they just finished a Guns N' Roses tour all over the world, and they're about to headline, so they're still pretty big at this time, but it ends for them quick. And then the last out of this group of six, and number 78, you got Swallow This Live by Poison, and it's technically on the way up because it just got released. Check this. So after three studio albums, look at what the cat dragged in, went to number three, opened up at Say Ah, went to number two. Flesh and Blood went to number two. 
They had 10 top 40 singles, five hitting the top 10, and Every Rose was number one. They released their first live album and it stalls at number 51. The writing was on the wall. After Something to Believe in did well in 90, they didn't smell the top 30 again. And basically, they released the single called So Tell Me Why off this album. Dude, their mamas don't even remember that song. I, I heard it today. I'm like, what the hell is that song? I've never heard that. That was a single, right? So Poison's obviously done by this point. So out of this six, it's close between Slave in the Grind and Bad Motor Finger to me, but I think I'm going to go with Soundgarden as my favorite out of these six. How about you? <laughs> well, first of all, Swallow is Live's a live record, so that probably had some bearing on how well it performed. But also, I like that So Tell Me Why song. I think it had like three or four new tunes on this uh, Swallow This Live record. And I don't remember any of those songs either. When I saw So Tell Me Why, I had to listen to it because I'd heard of it before, but couldn't remember what it sounded like i actually like that tune pretty much psychotic supper most of tesla will tell you this is their favorite album i like this record but i didn't like it as much at the time when it was released because i just didn't think it lived up to great radio controversy or mechanical resonance but i do like this record it's got a lot of great stuff on it and and it's aged well for me personally pretty hate machine nine inch nails I actually like this record. It's probably my favorite Nine Inch Nails record. I like the dancey industrial stuff that they were putting out at the time. I just thought it was different and unique sounding at the time. There were 50,000 other bands that came after them that, of course, started to sound like them. But at the time this was released, I thought it was kind of unique and kind of original and just different sounding. Bad Motor Finger, Soundgarden, obviously loved it. Crazy World, Scorpions, I've said it a million times on this episode. This record, for whatever reason, I didn't think that much about at the time. And I was a big Scorpions fan, but I think at this point I checked out. But every time I go back and listen to Crazy World, I'm kind of like, this record's not that bad. So I don't know what it is about this record, but I don't do Scorpions ballads. Now, a little bit of a side note here on this Scorpions conversation. I did read today, they've got a new record coming out. I said I was excited about that. I did read today, somebody had posted that they heard the record and said it's amazing. Said it's 14 killer songs with only one ballad. And that it harkens back to like animal magnetism blackout days. So I'm really, really excited to hear this new record by the Scorpions. That post also said that Klaus took the easy way out on the vocals. I don't know what that means. I just think that probably, you know, he's had vocal problems forever and a day, even going back to the blackout record when they bought Don Dockin in to do a lot of the background vocals. He has vocal issues. So you're not going to hear any screaming or anything like that. He's probably monotoned on the record or something. I don't know. We'll see. But I am excited to hear it. Back to this conversation. Slave to the Grind, Skid Row. Like Sonny said, we talked a lot about this record. I mean, it's great. But Going back to this album today, I love all the rocking tunes, but I can do without all the slower stuff that's on this record. And this record has a lot of slower stuff. Darkened Room, Quicksand Jesus, it's not for me. And then Swallow This Live by Poison. I own that record. I've listened to it maybe two times. I'm not a big live record fan, not even with the four new tunes. So that tells you what you need to know about Swallow This Live. For me, out of this group, it's going to be Slave to the Grind or Psychotic Supper for me with these records.
right, so the next five at number 64, Shake Your Moneymaker by Black Crows. Dude, this has been on the chart for almost two years at this point. So after She Talks to Angels did so well in 91, later that year, they re-release Hard to Handle. So tail end of 91, which goes into 92, that keeps the album going until Southern Harmony gets released in spring of 92. Hard to Handle, when it was first released, got to number 45 on the Billboard 100. When they released it again, in late 91, it got to number 26. Okay, so these guys aren't stupid. They're like, eh, we'll just kind of go with something that maybe people heard but didn't give it quite a chance. We'll try it again, and it worked. At number 59, heaven forbid, we talk about any kind of charts and don't talk about fucking Rush. So Rush with Roll the Bones, it was on the way up. It's their 14th album. It's released in September 91. It peaked at number three later. It's going up and down, up and down, depending on MTV and radio airplay. But what's interesting about this album is they released the album in September of 91, but they don't actually release the singles until 92. So it kept the album going for a while. Two singles were Roll to Bones and Ghost of a Chance. They're both okay songs, I guess. Rush isn't getting jacked by the changing of the landscape. Rush is bulletproof. At number 56, Pandora's Box by Aerosmith. So this thing is on the way down after it peaks at 45. But obviously Aerosmith's resurgence is complete. Right, Pump is on a two and a half year run. They release a box set in November 91. It tops out at 45. If you didn't know Aerosmith had 70s and early 80s stuff, this three box set gives you a great idea of their overall catalog. But here's the brilliance. This is Columbia releasing stuff that Aerosmith did with them, taking advantage of the success that Aerosmith had on Geffen. That is a smooth move. And they released Sweet Emotion as one of the singles, which helped the box set sales. Woo! I don't know if that was done through partnership, but that is a bitch of a move right there. <laughs> At number 51, Porno Graffiti by Extreme. We've talked about this album a ton. It's on the way down. It's been on the chart for a, over a year. Wholehearted was just released as a fourth single. Song for Love is getting released in early 92. More Than Words, it went to number one. Wholehearted went to number four. By the time Song for Love came out, this thing had died on the vine. And basically what happens to Extreme is... They burned out just as fast as they hit the scene, right? It took about two years to hit the scene. Two years later, they were gone. And the last out of this group of five, Firehouse at number 44 with their self-titled album, It's On The Way Down. This debut album came out in September 90, so it's been almost on the charts for a year. Took a minute to get going. Shake and Tumble didn't chart. Don't Treat Me Bad went to 19. And then Love of a Lifetime put them on the map. Juice the album forever. And then All She Wrote came out and went to 58 and gave him another bump. Thanks to another big ballad on the second album, When I Look Into Your Eyes, and it kept Firehouse on the charts all the way through 92. You could argue Firehouse wrote two of the best wedding rock ballads of all time. So out of this group, it's easy for me. Porno Graffiti is the best album I own, so it's my favorite out of these five. How about you? For me, it's going to be a slam dunk with that. Yeah, Porno Graffiti is definitely going to be the record for me out of this bunch. I own that Aerosmith Pandora's box. Roll the Bones is, it's an okay record. It's not in my top 10 Rush records, though. Uh, Shake Your Money Maker, man. They're still living off the royalties from that record. And Firehouse, uh, obviously, is an excellent album as well. But yeah, slam dunk for me. Porno Graffiti by Extreme got worn out. Everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell, and we want to hear yours. So go to our website at growinguprock.com. That's one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K.com. 
Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. So let's take a minute out to recognize the Loud Minority Facebook group. We appreciate each and every one of you and the conversations that we have within that group. If you're interested in joining up, just come on over to the Loud Minority Facebook group, the Grown Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group, and join up. It's a private group, and we have conversations about the podcast and music and other things. And it's a pretty positive conversation with a bunch of cool people. So. Take your time and join up. Also, I want to recognize all the killer reviews that we've been getting from people lately. We asked you guys to reach out and give us a five-star review at either Apple iTunes, Apple Podcast, or Podchaser, whatever platform that you listen to us at. Uh, And we appreciate it because it does help the podcast get noticed and get in more people's feeds. So it's just really quick and easy for you to do that helps us out. So if we entertain you guys in any way at all, we would appreciate you guys letting us know that. We see all the reviews and we do appreciate it because it helps us get out there. So once again, we appreciate you guys for listening. We hope we entertain you. Go leave us a five-star review. That'll help us out. Back to our show. All right, so the next group of five, at number 43, we got Queensryche with Empire. So thanks to the live album and releasing six singles off this record, with Another Rainy Night and Anybody Listening being the last two in late 91, early 92, Queensryche's still hot like we kind of talked about before, but like we said before, it doesn't last too much longer. At number 39, we got Van Halen's Fuck Record, which had also debuted at number one when it released. It's their third number one album with Sammy, released in June of 91. And they'd already released Pound Cake, Runaround, and Top of the World by this time. But right now, and the dream is over, is still coming in the spring of 92. So this album's got a ways to go. And obviously, Van Halen is immune from any musical landscape changing. They would have survived, and I would say continued to thrive if they could have kept playing nice with each other, because even when Balance came out three years later, it still went to number one. So they could have released a ton of music if they wanted to. At number 35, we got the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Blood, Sugar, Sex, Magic. It is on the way up. It's their fifth studio album, and it basically catapulted them to being one of the biggest bands around. Every album after this one hit the top five. Mother's Milk in 89 did well too. Red Hot Chili Peppers are like bubbling underground. And honestly, they don't get enough credit for changing the sound of music either. This whole funk, alt, rap rock completely exploded in the 90s. And Red Hot Chili Peppers is what drove that charge, in my opinion. The album had peaked at number four with one single, Give It Away. Under the Bridge hasn't even come out yet. It comes out a couple of weeks after January 11th, 92. So you can imagine this album was huge. By the way, trivia for you. Under the Bridge got to number two on the Billboard 100. Do you want to take a wild guess what song stopped it? You'll never guess. <laughs> All right. Well, so I, I'm not good with dates, so I won't even take a stab at it. What what song stopped it? Jump by Crisscross. Remember? <laughs> yeah, Daddy I remember. Make it. Jump, jump, Crisscross make it. Jump, jump. Yeah, that was number one. Atlanta Twins, I think, if I recall correctly. <laughs> yeah. At number 28, we got No More Tears by Ozzy. It's on the way up. It's Ozzy's sixth studio album. 
Ozzy ain't getting affected by any musical landscape change. He'd already survived through the 70s, the 80s, the two bottles of vodka every night, the snorting ants, the every drug he did on the planet at the same time. Homie is straight up Teflon, right? This thing's going up and down the charts. And Mama, I'm Coming Home hasn't even released yet. So Ozzy was doing just fine. Number 21 is kind of flat for the week on January 11th, 92. Motley Crue's Decade of Decadence. So Feel Good goes number one in 90. Last five singles. The band members absolutely hate each other. Band is imploding. Maybe they survive if they can stick it out. But Electra's not stupid. They're looking at going, oh, this thing might be over. And they release this uh, Greatest Hits album. It goes straight to number two. With only one album keeping it out of the top spot. Garth Brooks' Rope in the Wind, by the way. Primal Scream was the big single that sold the album. They re-released Home Sweet Home, and it charted again in 85 when it was first released. It got to number 89. When Home Sweet Home was re-released in 92, it got to number 37. But we saw that video so many times in 85, you would have thought it was number one single, but it really wasn't. So out of these five, this is a pretty good five. But I got to go with the fuck record as my favorite out of these. How about you? Yeah, this is a tough one because I definitely, I own all these five records. I remember, man, Primal Scream, that had to be one of the best, like, bonus songs, new songs on a greatest hits record ever. Like, I really, really loved Primal Scream when that song came out. Out of these records, probably the ones that got played the absolute most were Empire and No More Tears for me. Definitely the Van Halen fuck record was a big record for me. I talked about that in our Van Halen series. So it's really tough for me, but it's definitely between the Ozzy, Queensryche, and Van Halen record. My personal favorite? Wow, man. My personal favorite might be the Ozzy record, but they all three got played so damn much by me. I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers record as well. So, yeah, I'm going to go with the Ozzy record. I really love that No More Tears record a lot.
All right, so we're going to go with the top 10, and we always talk all 10 of the top 10, no matter what genre it is, and we'll split it up and try to get a favorite out of the first five and the and the last five. So at number 10, Time, Love, and Tenderness by the great Michael Bolton. It was a number one album. It was on its way down, but it's still at number 10. Seven studio album, five top 20 singles, Love is a Wonderful Thing, Time, Love, and Tenderness, Missing You Now, Steel Bars, and his number one hit off this album, When a Man Loves a Woman, classic Bolton album. At number nine, Metallica's Black Album. It had hit number one. It's on the way down, but it's still in the top 10. They released in August 91, and the rest is history. Metallica is still one of the biggest bands on the planet. They bridged the new wave of British heavy metal and grunge and alternative rock and gained like this super mass appeal. They were appealing to literally everybody. And all this success, and nothing else matters, wherever I may roam and sad but true, haven't even released yet. And it's already in the top 10, and it already hit number one. This thing lasted on the charts forever. And number seven and eight, you got Guns N' Roses, Illusion 1 and 2. Of course, they got released at the same time. Anytime you release a single, both albums are going to do well. Both albums had only been on the chart for four months at this point. Illusion 2 had hit number one. Illusion 1, for whatever reason, couldn't get past number two. Here's another band. If it survives through this, it doesn't implode. But you got to say, Guns N' Roses did it right. They put out four great albums, if you include Lies. Tell everybody you won't reunite in this lifetime. Wait it out. Bring back only the guys you need to bring back. And then come back as the biggest band on the planet, selling arenas everywhere for a multi-year run. Perfect. Right? They did it perfectly. And at number six, you got Cooley High Harmony by Boys to Men. This album had topped out at number three. You might want to call them R&B, call them a vocal harmony group. I call them boy band with skills. That's what these guys are. The album and band were marketed very well by Motown. The album debuted at number 58. It stayed on the charts forever. And Motown Philly went to number three. It's So Hard to Say Goodbye went to number two. End of the Road went to number one. In the Still of the Night went to number three. So this album kept going all the way through 1993, by the way. The album is nine times platinum. It deserves diamond status, in my opinion, because out of these five, I know I'm going to lose my rock hard, but Boys to Men's my favorite out of these five. <laughs> yeah, you're totally losing your uh, rock card. Dude, that album is awesome. <laughs> Boys to Men, ABC, BBD. <laughs> there you go. Well, look, let's start with Michael Bolton, Time, Love, and Tenderness. It's no fool's game. Come on. <laughs> what happened to michael bolton man he was rocking out when i first saw him on mtv and then he became this <laughs> metallica metallica is metallica not my favorite metallica album but damn can't be denied usual illusions one and two i actually prefer usual illusion one over two but two one out because of probably civil war i think maybe is why it, it went to number one versus number two and then Cooley High Harmony, Boys to Men. Sonny's right. It is a good record. I mean, come on. It's definitely got some hits. Uh, and I like some of that vocalizing stuff. For me, out of these records, I got to go with, man, I got to go with the Metallica record. I mean, I like Use Your Illusion 1, but like I've said so many times, there's a lot of crap on both those uh, Use Your Illusion records, and it would have made one really good record. But Metallica is pretty much a perfect record almost from start to finish. And I like some of the songs that never get talked about, like A Wolf of Men and things like that. So definitely just can't be denied. Metallica is the one for me out of that group. It's so hard to say goodbye. 
And as we get to number one, just know the seven out of the top 10 on this date had hit number one at some point. So Nirvana was not handed this number one album. At number five, Dangerous by Michael Jackson. It's basically just been released five weeks ago. It got all the way to number one. It was number one in a bunch of countries, probably a bunch of planets. I mean, this is the album that had black or white and remember the time on it. Oh my God, this album was huge. At number four, Octoon Baby by U2. Also, it peaked at number one. It's their seventh studio album. They're at this point, one of the biggest bands on the planet. You can technically say they still are. They're coming off the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum. And this album has mysterious ways, and it blew up. At number three, Too Legit to Quit by MC Hammer. Bay Area Brother, his fourth studio album. He's red hot because he's coming off Please Hammer Don't Hurt Him. And the title track on this album was huge. At number two, you got Rope in the Wind by Garth Brooks. The biggest name in 90s country, period. He'd already had a little bit of success, but this Rope in the Wind took him to iconic status. And then at number one, you got Nirvana. Want to guess how many studio albums they have? They have a whopping three. But the three singles off this album are Smells Like Teen Spirit, Come As You Are, and Lithium. And you could not get away from these three songs at all. No matter where you were on this planet, for some reason, those three songs showed up everywhere. And that's why they got to number one. Out of these five, for me, it's an ugly five to me. So I guess I got to go with Garth Brooks. Are you serious? I am dead serious. Holy shit. If I was handed these five albums, the one I would play would be Garth Brooks. Oh, my God. Okay. Oh, you do you, boo. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so out of these top five, I own three of them. I own Dangerous Michael Jackson. I like that record. There's a lot of good stuff on it. I like Black and White. I like Jam as well. Uh, and there's it's a great sounding record. Like it sounds sonically really good. And there's just some good stuff on there. Actune Baby, I like a lot as well. Uh, yes, I like a lot of you too. And this record was cool for me because it was definitely a little different sounding, uh, a little bit, I don't know, techno is not the right word, but it was just a little bit different for them. And I liked the way this record sounded. Too Legit to Quit. Other than that song, I don't know anything off this. I recall this record, even though it's in the top five, I recall them talking about this record as a huge failure because I think the song Too Legit to Quit was the only one that really happened off this record. And it was a failure simply because Hammer Don't Hurt Him was so ridiculously big. I may be remembering that wrong, but that seems to be what I recall about this record. Rope in the Wind, Garth Brooks. I know he's huge. I can't do country. Not at this time when this chart was out. So I have no clue. And then Nevermind by Nirvana, I own that as well. I had Nevermind, Etching Baby, and Michael Jackson. And at the time, I liked Nevermind. I think there's some good melodies in it. I was like everybody else. I jumped on the bandwagon. I was influenced by it. So it is what it is. Let me ask you a question. Out of these 10 albums, how many of them do you own? Or which ones do you own? I own 9 out of 10. Okay, which ones? You own everything except for Nirvana? I own everything except for you too. You don't like that album at all, huh? Or you just don't like the band at all? I cannot stand you too. Yeah, okay. 
I still haven't found what I'm looking for from those fuckers. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> You're here all night. Uh, so, look, it's, it's definitely a chart filled with everything from grunge and what would become grunge to rock and roll. Yeah, there's not a lot of hair band on this chart, that's for sure. Even the rock and roll that's on the chart is either heavy or thrashy or dirty. Most of it, anyway. I mean, I wouldn't call Firehouse dirty or Extreme dirty. And Poison, for sure, not dirty. And then the rest of the stuff, like the Scorpions and um, Aerosmith and the Rushes, that's just old school uh, rock and roll, Van Halen, things like that. So... What do you think? What's your overall thought? Did Nirvana's Nevermind kill our rock and roll? I say no. Yeah, so let me uh, give you a little bit of data, and then I'm going to answer that question. All right, so Nevermind released in September 24th, 91. It entered the Billboard 200 a month later at 144. Seven days later, it was a 65. Seven days after that, it was a 35. Two weeks after that, it was in the top 10. And it basically stayed in the top 10 for two and a half months. Got the number one spot on January 11th, 92. Lost it to Garth Brooks for two weeks. Then was number one again on February 1st, 92 for another week. And then lost a spot again to Garth Brooks. So when you're looking at the number one albums, let's say from since 1988, between June of 88 and November of 88, the number one albums that were hair metal were OU812, Hysteria, Appetite, New Jersey. Four iconic hair metal bands, if you want to call Guns N' Roses hair metal. In 89, Appetite hit number one again in February, and then Dr. Feelgood was number one for two weeks in October. That's it in 89. In 90, no hair metal album hit number one. In 91, Slave to the Grind hit number one. I guess you'd call them hair metal, although it's not a hair metal album. Fuck was number one for three weeks. GNR's Illusion 2 was number one for two weeks. So again, you got Skid Row, which there are ultra hot. Got Van Halen, Guns N' Roses. After Nirvana hits one in 92, you get Adrenalize, that hits number one for five weeks, but that's Def Leppard, and that's it. And in 93, the only hair metal band that hit number one was Aerosmith would get a grip, and I'm not sure you can call them hair metal. In 94, there was none, and in 95, it was balanced for one week with Van Halen. So even when you're talking about from 88 all the way to 95, you're talking about GNR, Van Halen, Def Leppard, Bon Jovi. I got to say, hair metal's already dead. Nirvana didn't kill them. It was dead before we even got here. So that's my answer. <laughs> so uh, here's the deal because i've gone back and forth with our friend baco from covers and fire about grunge killing hair metal etc cetera, etc cetera. i feel like i need to explain because some of the stuff that baco says is 100 percent valid when i say that grunge killed hair metal here's what i mean by that nirvana bands like nirvana and alice in chains and soundgarden had amazing success on the charts when bands have success on the charts, it opens up the floodgates for the record companies to sign other like bands, but to also spend their advertising dollars on what's hot at the time. So for a band to be hot, a record label has to spend money on it in most cases, right? You have a few exceptions out there, but most cases, advertising dollars have to be spent on something from a label to make it successful. That's what I think is meant when grunge killed rock and roll, because those advertising dollars aren't being spent on hair bands anymore. Not at radio, not at video, and not in print. They're also not signing 
hair bands anymore. And they're dropping hair bands off their labels so that they can open up spaces for other hot bands, right? Bands of grunge-like sound, so to speak. So that's what I mean when I say grunge killed hair bands. I don't think Nirvana by themselves killed hair metal. I just think they had a shitload of success, which opened up the door for a lot of other success. Yeah, and I agree with most of that. It's a very interesting to me. Nobody ever talks about hair metal killed the new wave of British heavy metal. How can we never talk about that? Well, because it was all rock and roll. It was one thing to another. I don't think hair metal really killed the new wave of British heavy metal. There's an interesting video that I watched today on YouTube. It's called Nuabo Timeline, uh, and it's only 25 minutes long, but the guy kind of lays it out in very easy to understand timeline how the new wave of British heavy metal started and where it kind of ended. And he shows the album releases and the bands involved and things like that. It's just kind of interesting to watch that. It's about 25 minutes long. Look it up on YouTube. You wanted the best and you got the best. The hottest band in the world. Kiss! It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So, back at KISS headquarters, 91-92, we're two years removed from Hot in the Shade. August 91, God Gave Rock and Roll to You 2 is released for Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. It reunites KISS with Bob Ezrin. Eric Carr gets really sick and passes away in November 91. December 91, they go back into the studio to write the next album. In a surprise move, they bring Vinnie Vincent back to help. I guess you could say time heals all wounds, although... Any divorced person you ask that to, they would say, no, it doesn't. So we could play a song from Revenge, but we're not going to do that. Because we were talking about Anthrax release, the Attack of the Killer Bees. And there is a version of Parasite on that album that's pretty damn good. So check it out.
So I like the heaviness. What I don't like about this Anthrax version of Parasite is that it basically loses that groove that I really love in Parasite. Oh, my God. I think Charlie is absolutely going off on the drums. I love what Charlie's doing. It's too fast, though. They sped it up too fast. No, I like it. Uh, I'm not an Anthrax fan. This is probably my favorite Anthrax song. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's interesting that you have that take on it. But, yeah. All right, cool. All right, so before we wrap it up, you know, we like to have a little fun around here. So January 11th, 92, the NFL. So we're at the conference championships. So the Bills have just beat the Broncos. The Redskins have just beat the Lions. In the Super Bowl is the Washington Redskins and the Buffalo Bills, Mark Rippon versus Jim Kelly. And again, the Bills lose to the Redskins. (laughs) The Washington football team. (laughs) Yeah. The NBA, what's going on? The Bulls are 29-5. and five. Of course, they're the best team in the NBA. Why? It's Jordan and Pippen. Hello. The number one movie in the U.S. starting a four-week run at number one. The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. Do you remember that movie? Wow, yeah. I remember the title, but I don't remember the movie that well. Rebecca De Mornay. Yeah, that movie did that well? Yeah, number one, four weeks. Wow. Want to take a wild guess what the number one TV show in the U.S. was? <laughs> no, because I don't know dates. God damn, it's always 60 minutes. Oh, damn it. <laughs> I always fall for that. Son of a bitch. <laughs> and the number one song in the U.S. for the sixth straight week was Black or White by Michael Jackson. So that's kind of what was going on on January 11th, 92 in the rest of the world. You know, besides Nirvana was number one. Black or White featuring Slash on guitar. That's right. Awesome. I love these episodes. Love them so much. If you've got an idea for a when rock ruled the charts and a date we should look at, by all means, share that date with us. Maybe we'll do it. But it just comes to me sometimes. It's just fun to look at certain things or I think about certain things in history and uh, go, you know, I wonder what the charts look like at that point in time. So I dig doing these episodes, and Sonny does most of the work for these episodes, so I always appreciate that because I just get to play along, basically. Yeah, I learn a lot in these type of episodes. Like, I think I've gotten off the Nirvana killed hair metal, right? I think hair metal really killed hair metal, but Nine Inch Nails and Red Hot Chili Peppers are not getting enough credit for also changing the landscape of music, right? So you got Metallica pulling it one way, you got Red Hot Chili Peppers pulling it another way, and then you got the grunge guys pulling it a third way. And I think that's why grunge maybe didn't last that long because there's too many places to go. And Metallica was king all be all there, right? And then you go to the, you get a little bit 10 years later, you got the Disturbed and the Godsmacks and those guys come in because they're trying to combine stuff that happens to be working that's part alt, part rap, part funk, part grunge. And they last for a little while, right? So through all of this, man, Metallica somehow got them all. It's amazing. Absolutely. Fun episode as always, for sure. So that's it. 
Thanks for all the listeners. We appreciate you. And we will talk to you guys next week. Obviously. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 